I mean, the last thing I said to the team, the last team talk was, don't ever think that you've arrived. Don't ever think you've done enough, that you've broken enough records. There are more out there. Welcome once again to Beyond the Grid with me, Tom Clarkson. My guest this week is someone I've admired for a long time, but someone we haven't heard from in a little while. He's a technical genius, and during his 30-year Formula One career, he worked on some truly groundbreaking innovations, as well as with some of the best drivers of the modern era. The man I'm talking about is, of course, Paddy Lowe. Paddy's had an amazing career. He joined Williams in 1987 as their head of electronics, and he immediately set to work on their all-conquering traction control and active suspension systems. He then spent 20 years at McLaren, where he was technical director, and he lived through the team's fantastic tussle with Ferrari in the late 90s and early noughties. And if that wasn't enough, he then enjoyed a gilded few years as Mercedes executive director when they dominated the early years of the hybrid era. He then made what everyone hoped would be a fairy tale move back to Williams, only for things not to work out the way either party had hoped, and Paddy hasn't been in the Formula One paddock since then. These past three decades were a fascinating time to be a Formula One engineer, and Paddy explains the challenges so eloquently in this podcast. We also talk team bosses, Frank Williams, Ron Dennis and Toto Wolff, and drivers, Mansell, Senna, Prost, Hacken and Hamilton. Paddy worked with them all. And he has some fascinating observations about each one. The next hour is Paddy at his brilliant best. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Paddy, it's great to see you. I haven't seen you for a while. Um, Just how are you and what do you make of Formula One in 2021? Yeah, great to see you too. I'm very well, actually enjoying doing some different things to the... uh, challenges that I've faced for many years in Formula One with with much enjoyment actually but yeah it's really great to do something different. 2021 we'll see I really enjoyed 2020 actually some great races it didn't look like it was going to turn out that way but they they were actually were all pretty good races so we'll see where it turns out in 2021. I know there's been huge excitement because someone else nearly won the race in Bahrain but didn't um so the first race and the first qualifying in particular i've always felt as you know that that's the test that's when you get your first exam results from a year or more of r&d and development of the new car it's a very tense moment and actually for the engineers it's you know point of great release actually because even if you didn't get the best marks in the class at least you know where you are and what you've got to do I think it's going to be fascinating to see how Mercedes respond to this threat, this outside threat. I mean, we've seen threats from within Rosberg versus Hamilton and things, but an outside threat. I mean, does a race team do anything different when it's in a real dogfight with someone else? The Mercedes have done a terrific job over seven seasons. Very, very strong. And actually, you know, we had a few tough races. I remember coining the phrase about you know, when we, you know, our competitors will regret when we have a bad day because we will learn from it and come back even stronger. I, I see Toto's taken that expression for himself these days. But I mean, that applied in a one-off situation of a race where something has got wrong. 
but you, you you ask a very interesting question for Mercedes if it turns out that way to have a season where they're truly fighting tooth and nail. For instance, um, two thousand seven was a terrific season for me at McLaren when we were literally tooth and nail with Ferrari, and you know it was pretty even race wins and poles and everything. The nature of circuits really played into it. So. I don't think Mercedes have had that in seven years. They've had some sort of tough races, but they haven't had that sustained fight to the very bitter end with with a, a very even competitor. So how they work up to that, we'll see, because a lot of people in the team have never known the idea of not winning. And when I was there, I, I took a lot of trouble to keep reminding people, because a lot of new faces arriving all the time, to say, you know, don't take for granted the idea that you can rock up and win a race it's really really difficult and yes we're doing it at the moment but don't ever think it's easy if it turns out to be a close fight with red bull we will see a new and interesting test of the team there in brackley and what about lewis hamilton when you've been doing this as long as he has and he's a driver you've worked with for so long, including that 2007 season you just mentioned. But does a guy like him almost need this challenge just to keep him at the top of his game? Yeah, I think it's a bit different for drivers. I think for the driver, it's almost the opposite. When you have a, a really tough competition, that does push you to the very best because you become the one that has to make the difference and actually it becomes more difficult to sustain a metronomic win rate when you haven't actually got the push from behind so I don't worry at all about Lewis's ability to deal with with an intense competition in fact the very season I mentioned 2007 was Lewis's first season in Formula One there was no issue from his side in terms of rising to what was needed and hitting the ground running look while we're talking about Lewis because you do know him so well, can you tell us how you think he has evolved and improved as a driver since 2007? Yeah, well, firstly, he arrived, as you hinted at just then, in, in terrific shape, hit the ground running, nine podiums in his first nine races. I, I don't believe we'll ever see that again for a rookie. So he was already, you know, <laughs> at a very, very uh, uniquely high level from the day he arrived in Formula One. But he has improved massively in, in all that time, yes. If there's one area, Paddy, if there's one area where Hamilton is better now... I would say in in the consistent delivery, you know, that there's nothing left on the table any day. You know, Lewis is supremely talented. And one of the features of people that are supremely talented is that they generally know they are. And um, that does sometimes leave scope for relaxation at certain points when they think, well, you know, I'm, you know, I'm the best. <laughs> I'm good enough. I'll, I'll make it work. I'll carry it through. And of course, it's not always down to you. Luck will, will play its part. Disturbance will get in the way of your talent. And 2016 was a great example of that, where Lewis had an extremely bad share of the bad luck around reliability which itself was very rare but you know it all came onto his plate and that gave him you know asked a lot of him which unfortunately he didn't have enough in the end to close the championship so I think that's an example where he learned you know you can't leave any race on the table um, you've got to take them all 
whatever way it's looking. And what about your relationship with Lewis? I mean, particularly actually after that Abu Dhabi Grand Prix in 2016, I'll never forget the radio message. And Here that- we go. Look, look at Hamilton holding up his teammate. It's like the brakes have jammed on his car. Lewis, this is Paddy. We need you to pick up the pace to win this race. That's the instruction. The crux of it was, can you hurry up, please? Because we're going to lose this race. And uh, it was it was a bit of a conversation. How was it after that race between the two of you? Oh, it was fine. He, there was no problem with that. Certainly not as far as I'm aware. The backstory there was Lewis was playing a, a very, very clever race, as he was absolutely entitled to do. And in fact, he made Nico's championship, that final result, all the more earned you know, for having really put Nico under such massive pressure. You know, it was a, actually a test of Nico's status as a world champion, really. But, and you know, why did the message? Well, first, there's a lot of chat on the radio, um, distress <laughs> within the team, let's say, at what was going on. I, I was much less stressed because I could see that Lewis had it all under control. And if the Ferrari had happened to come through, Lewis would have been off. So, you know, the, really for me wasn't any risk in the race win. But the reason I made the call was because we owed it to Nico to follow a protocol which said this is a team and, and we should work as a team. Uh, Nico had been very, very correct in Monaco that year in giving way to Lewis when he wasn't keeping up the necessary pace. So, you know, after one uh, warning that he needed to speed up, which, which he didn't, uh, he gave Lewis the lead straight away. And, and that call I made in Abu Dhabi was respecting that team position. I was actually asked to, to repeat the call to Lewis, to which I said, you know, then I will really look stupid because uh, we know he's not going to do anything different. Do you think Rosberg uh, is underrated as a driver? I mean, you've already said that Lewis had a lot of reliability or issues that year, but how good was Rosberg really? Uh, Nico is is an incredibly good driver, very very strong. I think the way I'd put it is his you know his pace is only equaled by Lewis really. I mean they Lewis would probably disagree, but you know Nico showed in the statistics that you know he could uh, hold his own with Lewis in in qualifying. I think, you know, where Lewis wins out, and I'm not going to single out Nico on this either, it's more Lewis's strength is in the race craft. You know, Lewis is just an, a supreme racer uh, and he knows how to take advantage, take position, play the game, you know, within the race to a level actually that, that I can't really think of an equal. And that's what makes the difference in the end, you know, because you, 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 you score the points on Sunday. Which raises the question, how important are drivers in the overall package? Because your former boss at Williams, Patrick Head, famously referred to them as light bulbs once, didn't he? You could take one out and put another one in. Now, how much of a disservice is he doing that? Yeah, massive, actually. You know, I mean, (laughs) you can't say that. I sat on a stand once in front of about 3,000 people with Lewis, and there was a QA and a with that, you know, is it the driver or the car? to me and I said well I generally say 50-50 and Lewis was looking at me like what are you talking about 
He thinks it's 80-20 in favour of the driver, I guess, right? <laughs> it is generally 50-50, and it can sometimes be 10-90 or sometimes 90-10. It really depends on the context. You know, if you've got a rubbish car that's at the back of the grid, then, frankly, the driver doesn't make a lot of difference. If you've got, you know, one of the best cars and you take, you know, the race, let's say, that we had in Bahrain between Lewis and Max, at that point, you may as well say the cars are the same and it's down, you know, it will, will be the driver that makes the difference there on the day to get the race win. And, you know, these are very fine points. I mean, Max, to be honest, made a mistake. You know, he was a bit too greedy with that final opportunity. If he'd just been a bit more patient, he'd have got a solid overtake and would have won the race. And, you know, perhaps Lewis would have played that differently in, in roles reverse. So this is a real, you know, at that point you have to say, yes, the car's important because that's given the platform, but the differentiator in the end was the driver. So it's very, very difficult, but clearly both necessary. And when it comes to, I mean, I, I, I there was a lot of discussion about this on Twitter after Lewis's seventh championship. Well, you know, anybody could have done that. It's just, he was always in the best car. And for me to win seven championships, uh, you just got to say, well, you know, the car had very little to do with that. You only can do that as a, a unique and incredibly talented driver. And even because all sorts of things come into play, to be in the best car sustainably for seven championships requires all sorts of human skills, not just driving, but, you know, personality, uh, loyalty, resilience, you know, one of the features of Lewis's career is he's only actually driven for two teams in Formula One, whereas you see many other drivers who've chopped around and then you have to ask questions, well, why was that? And these are part of the contributors to sustained success, are, you know, stability within the team and the reasons for that. Well, go on then. Here's the million dollar question, because you've worked with some amazing drivers I mean, you know, if we think back, you came into Formula One with Williams in 1987. That means you've worked with Piquet, you've worked with Mansell, you've worked with Prost. Did you work with Senna at McLaren in 93? Yes. Hakkinen as well. Who's, it's probably unfair to say who's the best of such a distinguished group. Answer that if you can. Otherwise, what is the factor that links all of those greats together? Well, firstly, for me, it's sort of great privilege that, that I've been able to work with that terrific range of world champions and, you know, enjoyed every minute of it. And particularly, you know, to, to enjoy the differences between them all. You know, they're all unique characters, both in terms of their driving and their race craft, but also as human beings. So, then I'm not answering your question yet. <laughs> um, honestly, I can't sort of pull out and say, you know, the best. Or Clearly, Lewis is an incredible force to be reckoned with in that, you know, for all that he achieves. And particularly, you know, for me, like I mentioned, that the first season, the first nine podiums is actually one of the greatest things I've ever seen firsthand in terms of race driving. But, you know, Nigel... Where do you start with Nigel? I actually would say the most exciting driver I ever worked with and the most, in many ways, the most rewarding for the engineer because actually when Nigel put a car around a lap, you absolutely knew he'd wrung its neck. There was nothing left because Nigel's commitment was a thousand percent. You know, he put his whole body and mind literally into that lap 
and um, you know that that was incredible to behold. And I worked with people who weren't great fans of Nigel, and uh, even they, you know, you could see they were like, okay, I've got to hand it to him. You know, that was incredible. Yeah, Mika was a great driver to work with. Really good fun. You know, so fast mm. and so uh, lateral thinking in his approach. That's interesting. What do you mean by a lateral thinker in a driving sense? Mick had no fear of a car. So, you know, anything you want to try, he's going to give it a go because, you know, he was a master at the car. Nothing was going to be too difficult. You know, we sat and brainstormed one day while waiting for an engine change, as you had to do back then, and came up with the idea of a hand throttle because he said, you're, you know, hands much nearer my head than my foot. It's got to be better. And we actually built it and tried it. It didn't work for various reasons. But, you know, he's one of the few drivers that would have given that a go. And actually, the, if you remember the brake steer. Of course, yeah. 97, that wasn't it? Yeah. Now, brake steer could deliver about a second a lap, but there was no instruction manual. You know, we built it. We had a sort of idea how you might use it. We didn't have simulators. We didn't have terrific simulation. So we just put it in the car, said to Mika, look, this is what it does. Go and see what you make of it. Only a driver like Mika could go out and explore that space and find a second a lap. And, you know, he was doing things like, for those who don't recall, brake steer applied the brake to one rear corner with an extra pedal. Supposed to be used on corner exit, you know, generally a slow, medium speed corner exit. Mika was using this at the entry to cops, which is a virtually, you know, flat sixth gear uh, just to tuck the rear, the front in a bit, you know. But we never told him to do that. He just thought, yeah, that might work and uh, started doing it. So, yeah, that that's an exciting process for an engineer to collaborate with a driver. God, it's so great to hear you talking about all these innovations. So my next question is, in your 30 years plus in Formula One, which has been the most interesting era from a technical point of view it's all been very interesting by the way it just changed in nature you know what i saw in those 30 years was a was actually a a, a reversal because in 1987 teams were a lot smaller 100 people we were really frankly quite unsophisticated in engineering terms we'd only really just come out of the back of a shed period the rule book was not the constraint in many respects. Um, it was our ability to deliver. So you could think up an idea, you know, in the bath, literally, and go in the next day and start doing it and get it on the car. So things like active suspension, things like traction control, which was literally one line of software in the computer and worth a second a lap. You know, those were things you just came up with the day before and then yeah that that could work and the and the reversal has been to period now where the engineering is so sophisticated we you know employ the best graduates from the best universities in the world as a rule the engineering excellence is is seen as a reference for other industries such as aerospace let alone automotive and so on and the rule book is is completely the constraint so you know, you're finding those very, very limits and any little opportunity that's found, the engineering is actually relatively trivial to, to jump into that gap um, because we have all the resources in the teams 
So I've so I've watched that uh, reversal over a thirty-year period, and uh, but I would say the most fun was the beginning back in the early nineties when I was at Williams. We'd first put a computer on the car. You know, now you have a machine that can deliver immense features just literally overnight, and that was really great fun. So, Paddy, what was your first job at Williams? Was it to develop the active suspension? Yeah. So Frank Durney uh, employed me. I had sent a CV to him speculatively. And were you fresh out of Cambridge at this point? No, I'd been to Cambridge. I then worked for a company called Metal Box, which is a packaging company. But actually, you know, that they are, it's a very high tech operation packaging because it's mass, mass, mass production, and you're trying to create margin within that. So yeah, I'd been working there a couple of years, and then I wrote to three teams on spec. If I recall, it was Benetton, Williams, and Arrows. Um, if it was called Benetton, it might have been Tolman. I think you were just Benetton in that era, probably. But so Paddy, it was def- you wanted to work in Formula One. You, you did engineering at Cambridge with a view to, to getting involved in racing. Is that right? No. Um, <laughs> tell, tell me <laughs> i've never had that sort of strategic career plan i've always liked machinery engines all that sort of thing my brother who's older is also an engineer and we you know he showed me the way we're always taking things to pieces and rebuilding them better and then i went to do engineering at university you know there wasn't the internet in then in those days to research anything really you went to the library and you're lucky if you could find a book that told you what you wanted. And I didn't really even know what an engineer was. You know, I mean, nobody tells you really. So when I came out of Cambridge, I didn't have a particular plan. I was, I went back to metal box. I only went to formula one because a friend of mine said literally in the pub one day, why don't you work in formula one? It never crossed my mind. Then I wrote these letters and, you know, within three months I had a job. God, who replied of those three teams? Only Obviously, Williams. Only Williams. Oh. <laughs> and Frank Frank needed um, a technician, he thought, because they decided to race the active suspension for the proper season in 88, having just raced it at Monza in 87. He thought we could probably do with a technician. I think by the time he'd interviewed me and a chap called Steve Wise, who were both engineers that had arrived on his desk, in CV form, he realised actually he needed some engineers uh, and he employed both of us. For those people listening who don't know or don't understand active suspension, can you just explain how it worked, that version, those early versions of it? Yeah, there are there are many, many types of active suspension, but essentially, you know, a passive suspension, which is what most road cars have and, and modern day Formula One, is something where no energy is added to the suspension from anywhere except you know from road disturbance um so you know you have dampers and springs but they're all uh, reacting or even dissipating energy that's come from the road whereas an active you're applying energy and in this case it comes via hydraulics so you have a hydraulic pump which is supplying that hydraulic energy in this case it was to actuators on on each corner and There are two roles of a suspension on a racing car. One is to absorb the the variation in in track surface, so the bumps in the road in effect. The the other is to maintain a ride height or a ground clearance or an attitude for aerodynamic reasons. 
actually on a racing car that that second is by far the most important so the, the main delivery of the williams active suspension was that we could maintain an attitude of the car much like an aeroplane that we we wanted at all times rather than one that was simply a function of the passive deflection of a passive suspension in response to aerodynamic load interesting that it gave you such big gains in an era when aerodynamics was still quite simplistic compared to today. I mean, can you imagine the gains you'd get today with today's systems if you ran it now? Yeah, that's an interesting question, which I haven't really considered till now, but it may not, it may actually have been better then because whilst aerodynamics were a lot simpler and cruder then than now, the amount of downforce generated was still very significant. You know, it was comparable to today. You know, what's happened is the rules have been progressively narrowed and narrowed. The envelope within which you can generate downforce is far, far more restricted now than it was then. So the envelope's been progressively reduced in order to maintain generally level performance. So I think in that context of relatively crude aerodynamics, actually the ability to maintain ride height had maybe more of a benefit for a system that was was highly unoptimized. Whereas today's aerodynamics, they've you know spent a huge amount of effort trying to make it all work at the different ride heights that occur and the different car attitudes that occur within a passive regime. So it'd be interesting to see, but I suspect they would gain less actually from an active suspension now than than we did then. How much did the active ride improve between 1987 when you won that race at Monza and when it was outlawed at the end of 93? Uh, dramatically, the thing about that 87 system, which we then raced um, broadly similar manner the first half of 88, it was very crudely put together. It was frankly not ready to race on all sorts of levels. And so, by the you know, we took it off overnight at Silverstone in 88, famously, and converted to passive for qualifying. Uh, and Nigel um, also famously got uh, second. Was it second in qualifying? Or yeah, right. One of the two. Anyway, we regrouped uh, and came back in 92 with a system that was far more refined to be a very much safer well safe as opposed to not really very safe at all was reliable and more importantly was much more sophisticated in terms of how it maintained consistency how it varied the actually the system in 1988 had a fixed ride height front and rear um, whereas the 92 system had a scheduled it would had variable ride heights around the lap different speeds and different conditions and also even in roll, so it had roll um, variation, which helped a lot. What gave you more lap time, traction control or active suspension? That was the funny thing, actually, because we'd spent, you know, all together, including the early work by, by Frank, maybe eight years on the active suspension, you know, complicated system, expensive, um, and that was worth about a second a lap. And then at the last minute, you know, late 91, as we were getting ready to race the active for 92, we introduced traction control and first ran that with Damon Hill at, at a Ricard test, winter 91. And he actually came in 
again, no simulator, no idea what this thing was going to do. You just, in principle, thought you know, there was no rig to test it. We just came up with an algorithm, put it on there, sent him out. And he came in and said, no, I don't like this. It's holding me back, he said. I can feel it holding me back because it's cutting cylinders on the exit. And we said, yeah, well, that's all very well, but you are a second a lap quicker. <laughs> and then what did Damon say? <laughs> I can't remember what he said at that point, but, you know, that was it. Then we were racing it. As I said, it was a line of code. It was some good cleverness on the sent- measuring speed of a wheel is a trivial point now, but, you know, we just introduced a device called a differential hall effect sensor to those in the know. I'm looking blankly at you, yeah. Some people will understand that term, but it effectively gave you a very, very reliable speed sensor. And what you need for traction control is to measure front speed and rear speed very accurately without noise and spikes and nastiness like that. So that was the breakthrough, was the speed measurement and then a line of code and then an ability to communicate to the engine ECU how many cylinders you wanted to cut. And that was also a novelty because we used a thing called controller area network, CAN, which is now ubiquitous. You know, every road car you you get in will have, has actually many, many computers and they all talk to each other with CAN. It's, it's an automotive networking protocol. And, and that was the very, very early for CAN. We used the very first chips from Intel that supported the CAN protocol to talk to the engine ECU and tell it to cut cylinders. Were there any reliability issues cutting cylinders? Were, were the guys at Renault having headaches, sleepless nights about it? They were in the end, yeah. We we trivialised such things. You know, it never occurred to us that it might be slightly awkward to cut cylinders when the engine was near the rev limit. Um, we just did it and then told them about it afterwards. No, the, well, the electronics people knew because they supported the execution but i think the mechanical people were a bit late to understand the heinous crimes being committed but we were doing it anyway and um i remember kyle army the first uh, race 92 we actually switched the traction control off for nigel he was well in the lead and there were concerns from renault so we just switched it off and it was that just a, a button in the steering wheel for him yeah he had a you know there was a a, a control because they were rightly nervous about, you know, damage to the engine from this sort of intermittent misfires, effectively. And Ricardo, who was coming second, was under a lot of threat from Ayrton. And every time he was under threat, he'd switch the traction control on and stretch out a gap again. And then the Renault people would come running out to the pit wall, tell him to switch off the traction control. So this That's happened sort of three or four times through the race. As it turned out, you know, the engine was very, very robust. And as they gained confidence, uh, we left it on all the time. Interesting that Damon's first reaction to traction control was that it was holding him back. Reminds me of something Prost said about the active ride in that he said the car felt numb, I think is the quote I've uh, heard from him. Can you relate to that? Can you understand what Alain is saying? I have a much better quote. I've got it on a signed bit of paper. When he um, <laughs> first drove the car in Estoril at the end of 92, he told the press it's the best car he'd ever driven. And that was the headline. So I, I got him to sign that. But anyway, yeah, I think later on, as is the nature with racing drivers, when things aren't so easy, performance for a racing driver is never absolute. It's all about 
where you are, uh, particularly relative to your teammate. So, you know, a car that's allowed you to win easily is faultless. <laughs> so, um, if your teammate is snapping at your heels or worse, still quicker, then there's all sorts of problems with the car. Um, that's standard with racing drivers. So I think, Alan, you know, when we got into the season in 93 and I actually had left halfway through anyway, but, you know, it, was, it wasn't it was the easiest season. You know, Alan is a, actually a very particular type of driver. He's a very unusual driver. And I, I think he was probably right in those statements. Uh, you know, it wasn't a car that always had, you know, it doesn't have that directness you have with springs, springs that are made of sort of wire or solid bits of steel they they behave and respond in a very very predictable way uh whereas if you're supported on lumps of oil uh, sometimes may vary in quality it doesn't quite have that consistency and this is where nigel was supreme because actually nigel didn't care about any of that stuff it's just what he could get away with and he would find the downforce and and it required utter confidence I, I mean that active car was not an easy car to drive but if you if you believed in it and believed the downforce would arrive then it would you know it would deliver and and it was you know, drivers have a spectrum of how much they rely on what they feel in the moment and how much they rely on previous learning and and confidence and, and Nigel is probably the most extreme that I've ever worked with who can work just everything is about real time. So he will respond to just anything that's being thrown at him. It's not about memory. It's just about this happened. I will react. He has the most incredible reaction capacity. And with the active car, you actually had to drive through moments of the corner where it might probably feel like you're jumping off a cliff. But he would know that whatever came next, he was going to be able to deal with it. Wow. It's almost a sort of blind faith, isn't it? A blind faith. Uh, you know, in the greatest complex, you know, how teammates are not, uh, they're never mates. There's a certain tension because they're, they're actually, they're competing with each other more than anyone else. So they're always, you know, they might be mates afterwards and before, but when they're driving together, there's a lot of tension. And when Nigel got his pole in Silverstone in 92 with the active car, uh, you know, and he was 40 kilometres an hour quicker than Ricardo through Cops Corner, 40 kilometres, 25 kilometres quicker than he had been in the practice session. So that's this blind faith I'm talking about. Yeah, extraordinary. The quicker you go, the quicker you're going to be able to go, but you have to believe. So 40 Ks quicker than Ricardo. Ricardo came into these very small offices we had in those days in the end of a truck and said, Nigel, stand up. And Nigel looked at him like, uh, what's going on? <laughs> and Ricardo sort of cupped his hands under Nigel's crotch and said, I want to feel the weight, the bollocks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What a great story. Look, before we move on from the active system, there is one other story I wanted to ask you about, and it involves William's test driver before Damon, Mark Blundell, Pembrey, Paddy, I've got a leak. <laughs> yeah, that was, a, that was a fun day. We used to go to Pembrey all the time to test this active car. It was a prototype car, wasn't a current race car. We had our own truck, actually, our own team. 
completely independent, just testing evolutions of the active suspension. And Mark was our test driver. And they were really fun days, actually, because we go off on our own and do all our own stuff. Yeah, the, the, we had a lot of spate, a spate of oil leaks with all the hydraulics. And it was something I was sort of very sensitive about, you know, had we got to the bottom of all this, had we built in the reliability and the guys were all in on this apart from me and they sent him out with a, a welsh vegetable in the footwell on the outlap the first lap of the day and mark calling the radio he had a terrible terrible he's got a leak in the cockpit there's photographic evidence of all of this shenanigans did you laugh oh absolutely <laughs> yeah, yeah of course <laughs> Let's move to McLaren next. You say that you left Williams midway through 93. Must have been fascinating for you to take a look at their active ride system. How did it compare to, to what you'd done at Williams? This was very different because essentially it was a passive suspension with a variable platform. So if you imagine it, your spring damper unit, but with a hydraulic actuator under the base of it so that you could just move the the height of each corner, independent of the spring and damper, which might sound like a really obvious and simple way to do it, but it, it actually doesn't take you away from one of the essential problems with active suspension, which is how do you discriminate between a bump, which you don't want to react to in terms of ride height, and a desired uh, ride height or an error in that ride height as, as you've wanted to deliver. Actually, although that's then existing in two different places, you still haven't essentially solved that problem. And, and that's a control problem. In the Williams car, those two aspects are combined in one set of hydraulics and in the McLaren in two separate systems. But within the software, you still have to resolve it. But it did. Yeah, it worked. They had got in, into a very interesting area where they were literally programming this height uh, meter by meter around the track. And I didn't agree with that, really, because for me, I felt the car needs to have natural qualities, a natural balance, natural behavior as a function of condition, rather than effectively a, a, a pre-programmed schedule of heights around a lap trajectory, which may not always be maintained. And then where would you be? What was a driver like Senna saying about the system? Well, he clearly got the best of it. He And, and one five races that year with that system but it took a huge huge amount of offline effort the mechanics would go home really early actually with the engineers who were there all night programming these meter by meter ride heights and they made it work it was just sort of i was philosophically troubled by it but you know it it, it did the job and what about the environment at McLaren? How did it compare to what you'd experienced at Williams? Was it a more creative place to work? I think just as creative, it had, you know, some some big differences in approach. I think it was a bit more cumbersome in the way they were doing the electronics because it was done by a different company, which was Tag Electronics. You know, we'd done things at Williams literally on a, you know, on a shoestring. You know, I'd personally written bits of software that at McLaren, they had a team of 20 people doing it. Um, so, you know, and it had been a tenth of my job. Yeah, it was different. It was less nimble, but maybe, you know, they'd built up a more professional infrastructure already. Yeah, a bit maybe they was, it was still a little bit closed minded back then. Um, they were still in a mode because they'd won. You remember they'd won 
many seasons in a row and there was still a feeling oh yeah we lost last year but that was just because we made a mistake here or there and we'll be back and it took them quite a few years to realize how much they needed to do to to recover and get back to the front and how much of that permeated down from ron dennis even over the technical aspects of the team, how hands-on was he? Did he get involved? Did you have to seek his permission to try new things? No, no, not at all. No, Ron uh, Ron doesn't get involved in the technicalities. He would understand what was happening. He wanted to be informed. But Ron, Ron didn't involve himself in technical decisions unless there was some sort of crisis where you know, he was needed to make a call for the big picture. No, Ron, very supportive, actually, all, all the time. And, you know, if you talk about different, the big difference for me coming across that boundary in, in 93, Williams and McLaren were the two big guys. They were the two Goliaths of the sport. And I'd, you know, gone traitor crossing the wall. And what was the bit, I was often asked then, what's the difference? And I would say, well, Williams is an engineering-led company and McLaren is a marketing-led company. That was my conclusion after studying the difference. And I'd still maintain that today. Actually, that that's how, you know, Ron had set it up as a, his vision was, was about brand and market and partners and the funding that goes with that. You'd have to say he was the one that got it right. If you take a 30-year view, you know, Ron, you know, unfortunately squeezed out of his own company in the end, but he left a, a two billion group and Williams were sold last year for, you know, in the realms of 100 million. And, and I think that's your answer there. What did Frank and Patrick say when you handed in your notice? I don't remember Frank, actually. I think he was probably just quite philosophical and resigned. I think Patrick was very upset because he hated McLaren. <laughs> Uh, and he couldn't believe that I was going there, you know, that what it sort of destroyed his image of my calibration of the world. Yeah, he was very upset. But in fairness, you know, they were very, very good to me. I had six months notice period, but actually I worked for five of those carrying on on active projects, even attending races. So I think, you know, they trusted my professionalism and I ended up, I did a management training course at a place called Ashridge College for the month, the last month of my notice, which was paid for by McLaren, but within William's notice period. And that was also good fun. While you were at McLaren, we saw the team make a seismic shift from their old factory into the MTC. You roughly did 10 years in the old factory and 10 years in the new one. How did the ethos of the team change when he went into these amazing new surroundings it was a bit of a shock to start with because the scale is, is just immense and, and i remember one time a few years later going back to what we called unit 22 in the trading park and you just couldn't believe how small it was you know it, it's i think it's a bit like you know when you go back to your school that actually I haven't done that, but I've heard this from others. They, it just looks minute. You can't believe that. So it was like that. And and we really got a bit lost and just how long it took to walk anywhere. You know, even just to walk to get a cup of tea took you 10 minutes. So And there was a bit missing because it was less of a community with the race bays and so on. It was all a bit more disconnected. But, you know, we 
we adapted and actually you know it's a terrific building to work in in the end you know the, i mean the thing about mclaren that even you know go back to patrick i go back you know it has this impression perhaps decreasing now under zach but certainly you know all the time under ron it this impression of you know supreme grayness and you know very disciplined and you know they took the piss out of me at williams oh, you know there's a standard haircut you get the guy comes around on fridays i believe them but yeah i remember jensen button coming to mclaren what year was it 2010 yeah and after a while he sort of he said you guys are all right actually <laughs> <laughs> so he had such an impression which i think most in the paddock have had of this sort of terrible grayness and really dull people and you know no fun and and actually i have to say and this is what jensen said you know you guys are the most fun people i ever worked with because there was a great sense of humor great camaraderie um and it it might be almost as a resistance to the the, because they are it is literally gray uh the walls and the ceiling everything so i think some a little bit of that imposed grayness has people you know deliver more resistance in in a humanity terms so and back in the day you know they were so metronomic in their consistency so consistently good it was impossible to think i guess that there was room to be a character and to have have a laugh maybe but it was all an impression and i think this is part of ron actually to be fair very clever part of ron's branding and that attracted some terrific sponsors, long-lasting sponsors, mm. who like who identified that was the brand they wanted for their product. And a lot of brand, you know, linked brands. So a lot of the sponsors they they worked together, and that was a new thing for Ron. Uh, new in the in Formula One was to get was having sponsors that worked with each other on common themes, and so Ron made that work. Also, an interesting thing is you arrive in 93 and then 94, you have the Peugeot engine. Then there's 95, the change to Mercedes and difficult results. It was kind of the first time in your career that you hadn't been winning races. How difficult were those mid 90s for you and for McLaren? Oh, that's uh, that's not true, actually. When I first arrived at Williams, we immediately stopped winning races. Oh, in 88, because you lost the Honda. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> well, and, and literally at the end of 87. So, no, it was very, very difficult at Williams those first few years because we were incredibly unsuccessful uh, having just won the championship in 87. So I think, yeah, going to 95 or so with McLaren, I was fine with it. I think there were others around who were more distressed about it and not understanding that what we needed to do was objective work and you know, and that's that's the push that you need to keep. Uh, even you know, when you when when you've grown used to winning, and the team have to start taking it for granted, that's actually a very difficult phase in the team cycle. Because before you can start doing the right things, you actually need people to start to appreciate that they need to do it, and that things aren't just going to arrive on their plate. And that can be, you know, certainly with the large teams we have around now in Formula One you know, 900 plus people. It's intensely competitive and it's about putting in not only the hours, but the really digging deep on the the thinking and the inventiveness and everybody else is doing the same. So if you're not digging quite as deep as the next team, then you're going to be 
not taking the top step. After 20 years at McLaren, you decide to leave. Was that a difficult decision to go to Mercedes? In one way, yes. It, it seemed very difficult at the time. And then once I'd done it, I couldn't believe why I'd taken so long to sort of deliberate over it. I feel like I'm talking to Lewis Hamilton because <laughs> you're kind of... Yeah, well, we left at a very similar time, actually. Yeah. And, and maybe for some similar reasons. I mean, did you talk about it just out of interest? Not at all. It was completely independent. To be fair, he, I knew he was leaving well before I left, so it wasn't concurrent. You know, I'd been technical director effectively since Adrian left, which was 2000, end of 2005. And, you know, actually, if you go and analyse that period the number of races we won, unfortunately not with many championships. We we just got the drivers in 2008, but that was it. But we won a lot of races. We were generally coming second in championships. And, you know, more and more, I'd see, you know, when I arrived at McLaren, Ron actually prided himself on winning races with his wallet. I mean, literally. I have, by the way, actually been at a friendly karting competition with McLaren v Williams, where Ron literally did that in the endurance race. He literally went and bought more laps so that the Williams guy would get knackered and we'd win. That was his mindset. <laughs> so, uh, and I like that. I mean, that's to be admired. And yet, over that 20 year period, it, that had inverted, and McLaren was more and more run on an accountancy basis. And, you know, they got the road car thing and there was a lot of debt around that. A lot of financing around the share buyback from Mercedes as well. Put it all together. Basically, the team was insufficiently funded to win. It was very, very efficient. We delivered all of these race wins against extraordinary deficient funding compared to those we were racing amongst. And, and we knew this, you know, we because people come and go from other teams. We had spreadsheets showing how many aerodynamics were in every team, how what facilities they had, the team sizes particularly. And we knew we were underpowered um, significantly. And yet the way it was structured, McLaren expected winning results, but wasn't stepping up to that financially. And, and it's always very easy to blame the engineers. Well, you're not doing a good enough job. But at a certain point, I actually, to be frank, got fed up with that. It was not honestly stated that, okay, we haven't got the money. For these reasons, we can't put in the money to compete at that level. So let's just do, you know, plough on and do the best we can with which we're already doing. Um, so, you know, I, I, I just got tired of working really, you know, and the innovation that we pulled out was, for me, extraordinary. What we did, you know, the F-flap, the the seamless shift the coanda i mean incredible achievements um and never got the top step with it and and i don't know if you i always feel for olympians actually who don't get the gold medal because there's that feel you know i've got to wait four years to have another go because i know it's bad enough when you you're in brazil or somewhere and you just miss the championship by a point uh and that's literally happened you know how much you had to put in to get to that point. You know, every grain of resource that you can muster personally and from the people. So, And then there's that feeling I've got to start that all over again from zero. And I just, you know, you want to go and do it. And the refreshing point, going to Mercedes, I was mind blown. 
at the budget, basically. <laughs> and, you know, because I was used to what effectively was an extreme efficiency formula in McLaren and every pound had to be argued, checked, you know, can we get a better price? You know, every single thing, trying to get more for less. And, you know, at Mercedes, it just wasn't like that. I mean, yeah. I was having to become the guy and then realized I just shouldn't be the guy that stopped stuff because I just thought it was a waste of money. Um, but then you realize that we have those resources. If it will make a bit of difference, then we'll do it. And it will make that bit of difference. And that all adds up. And did you know in 13 what was coming with the power unit for 14? I mean, we knew that they were doing a good job. But to be honest, I, and you can speak to Andy Cowell and he will express no confidence at that point that they were going to come out head of the class. Because I think for all of the engine manufacturers, a very, very tough period, radically new engine, obviously always being pushed by their owners and other stakeholders that, you know, you've got to come out being the best enormous pressure for those engine teams and with equipment which is essentially fragile you know i mean an engine you know pushed formula one engine pushed to the limit is incredibly fragile and the difference between hero and zero is right there in a bunch of shrapnel so they're working this context and and you know i've seen uh, andy's descriptions of it uh, much of which we didn't really know at the time because they just you know they were busy with the work not telling anyone everyone what their problems were it was a very, very tough period and they had absolutely no confidence. But I think as we got to the first test, uh, certainly into the second test, it became more clear that A, that some others were in desperate disarray, mentioning no, no names, and that we were in reasonably good shape. And then we came with another upgrade in Bahrain test, which was a, literally a bolt-on extra. That was suddenly another seven or eight tenths in horsepower. That was an enormous day. And we knew at that point that we were in some quite special territory. And what was it like to ride that wave of dominance? It was exciting, but, you know, you had other stresses. I mean, so imagine the scene. You've got Toto and the board of Daimler who are worried about the negative politics about of looking too good. Was that really a discussion? We can't be seen to be too good. Absolutely, because there were no, because no, there were material reasons for that as well, because the politics of the time. You remember, you've got Bernie running around saying this is all a nightmare; these engines are terrible. Well, the thinking was, if Mercedes had looked ridiculously good, then something would be done about it. I think a tweak to the rules to peg you back. Yeah, bit. something. Yeah. So there was a lot of tension actually around the strangest of subjects, which was how good to look. So I, I'm on the pit wall, you know, in qualifying, we would never turn the engine up for Q1 or Q2. It was run in a sort of idle mode of some sort. <laughs> and then, by the way, it was a good car as well. It wasn't just the engine. We're, you know, we had terrific aerodynamics as well, better than anyone, actually, which we used to track because we would engine correct all of our data. And that car was better than any car, quite apart from the engine. The debate would then be, you know, how much to turn the engine up for Q3. I'd be getting it in the ear from Toto, you know, that's too much, that's too much, we'll look. And 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 I'm thinking, yeah, but if we don't get a pole, we'll look like a right bunch of mugs. <laughs> so, you know, what number to pick that would wow. do the job? And knowing you, you didn't want to err on, on the wrong way. 
So uh, that was a big part of the discussion on Saturday <laughs> afternoon. Um, nice chat to have. Yeah, a very unusual chat to have in Formula One. And actually that went on quite a long time. Through most of 2014, that engine was never on full power for qualifying. And do you get to a point where you become paranoid about the run ending? As you went into 15, as you went into 2016, would you, how, how nervous would you get? about where the other teams would be at relative to you? I mean, I didn't get nervous because, you know, I've been in the sport a long time and I'm a lot more steady about these things. You know, you have to stay balanced and objective and just keep doing your best and pushing and making good decisions. I think there was a lot of stress around the topic from people around me, let's say, about, you know, were we good enough? And um, actually, funnily enough that you mention it, the first testing in 2015 was actually quite an awkward period from that point of view, because there was a lot of tension in the garage around, you know, were we quick enough to win again? And actually on the engineering side, we knew we were from data without having to go and prove it on the track. And what was Toto like to work with? Oh, I loved working with Toto, actually. He's he's a great character. You know, he's, a, he's an incredible entrepreneur, actually. You know, if you get him onto some of the stories, how he first made money, you know, it, you understand how he got to be where he is. He's an exciting, interesting guy to work with. And actually, I think we worked very well together. We took the team to that next level. You know, Ross had built a certain platform and done a terrific job of that. And we were able to take what was there and, and move it another rung up in terms of overall performance, reliability and resilience. I think many of those foundations that we put in there on top of Ross's, uh, you know, are there today and, you know, have, have supported them through these seven championships. You know, at that time, Toto was relatively new in the sport. So whilst he's a terrific entrepreneur and a great businessman, he didn't have that Formula One, you know, that, that deep knowledge and experience. And, and that can sometimes leave you a little bit imbalanced if you haven't, you know, when you've got a bad day, you know, some of us, let's say more battle weary <laughs> characters are able to bring some balance and perspective to that. And I think we were a, a good combination. And I hope if you talk to Toto, he would say also that he enjoyed those three and a half years we worked together. So why did it come to an end? You've just won three championships on the bounce. I think, yeah, it's quite a few reasons. Um, I think I'd taken the team with Toto to a really good place. And part of that was this sustained ability to win. Yeah, and I mean, the last thing I said to the team in the last team talk was don't ever think that you've arrived. Don't ever think you've done enough, that you've broken enough records. We've broken all sorts of records, but there are more out there and just you've got to never be satisfied. I don't think that I guess I had an awful lot more to bring to that. And I think in the way Toto and I were positioned, he, he wanted to take it also in a, in a different direction for him. So... And at the same time, I had other opportunities. So, you know, put that all in, in the mix together. It was the right time to move on. I'm sure I wasn't the only one thinking it was going to be a fairy tale return to Williams. It didn't work out. When you reflect on those couple of years with Williams as what were you, chief technical officer, what do you think now? 
Why didn't it work out? It's a period I don't really like to dwell on, to be honest, because in all of that time in Formula One, which I loved every single year and all for different reasons. And in some ways, it just got better and better. Those two years at Williams, I, I, I didn't enjoy, to be honest. It was uh, really hard work for no reward whatsoever. And yeah, I, th- I think probably less said the better, to be honest, Tom. Um, all I'd say is Formula One is an impatient space. Nothing is patient in Formula One. And yet it's an incredibly difficult competition. It's, it's arguably the most difficult competition, you know, on earth. And that means if you miss a trick and certainly if you're not doing the right things for a long period of time, you can't expect overnight recoveries. It doesn't matter. There are things that are beyond. It's not a human point. It's not, you know, I'm good at a lot of things. And I think I've proven that in a number of areas. But, you know, I can't work miracles and certainly not miracles in respect of time. I'll give you a good example. The foundation of a winning team is literally a winning team. You know, it's the people. Now, the best people in Formula One don't generally want to go and work for a team that doesn't look in great shape. So it's already difficult to hire the best people. And if you can, they are normally on very long notice periods. Even then, when they arrive, it will take them a year, two, three years to create any sort of impact on the infrastructure. Because the, the, the car you produce... And its performance is a function of your organization, people, equipment, technology, software, all of your knowledge deployed into this product. So, you know, if you've got a slow car, it's not that you've got a slow car, it's that you've got an organization that makes slow cars. So you have to fix the organization and it's a long, long process. Uh, And we'll see that, you know, Williams had the benefit of the best engine by a long chalk from 2014. So that gave some, let's say, false impression of underlying performance. They were, you know, living off a number of other legacy advantages that gradually unwind. Because when the organization starts to lose its way because it hasn't had the right investments or made the right decisions, it doesn't instantly make bad cars. The unwinding is equally slow as the winding. So, you know, this this is why it's very difficult, as I said, when your team has lost that ability to understand how difficult it is to win, what a long and crucial process is, because the the effects of that are quite long-winded. You know, you saw McLaren, they won from 88 through to 91. For me, in my early career, the idea of beating McLaren was like beating the Romans. You know, we were never going to do it. When we got to Kyle Army in 92 and we were quicker than them in qualifying, we were, well, that can't be true. You know, there's something, yeah, they've just forgotten something. They'll be back tomorrow. And yet for McLaren, it took them from that, you know, when were they winning again? 97, really, with a decent car. So mm. the six years mm. to just turn, and they didn't sink that low. So, I I wish Williams all the best with their new owners. You know, it's terrific. They've got owners that have funding because, you know, in the end, you need funding for all of this. Paddy, what was your reaction when you heard the team was being sold and that the family was leaving? I was pleased because that's what they've needed to do for a long time. And to be honest, should have done it earlier. 
for all sorts of reasons, which are not to do with any individuals or, you know, the team was has been in a, a very negative spiral from a funding point of view. While I was there, I was watching that spiral progress further down the drain. And it's actually quite distressing because you understand that there's no good endpoint apart from a sale. So you may as well cut that now and move on before it's all gone. And I'm lucky, I'm very happy that the team was sold for you know a reasonable price, and so that uh, Claire and her brothers leave with something to work with from the great things the family's achieved over the years. The name is kept, and they've got new investors who will have the cash to take it forward and get turn that spiral in the other direction, but which will be a long process. And people that are patient will take it there. Well, here, here. I know there's a lot of people listening who who will hope for the same. Well, Paddy, what an amazing chat. It's been so interesting. Now, when you reflect on it all, when do you think you were happiest in Formula One? As I said, I was happy through almost all of it. But I, th- I think the greatest period, actually, that time at Mercedes, working with Toto and a terrific team there. You know, I mean, the engineers there, amazing crew. I had the privilege to be involved in that sort of really perfect moment. I could personally contribute all my best ideas. It's almost like for my whole career had been leading to that point. I have been a follower of many role models in the sport, many of whom we've named, you know, Ron, Martin, Whitmarsh, Frank, Patrick, Ross, Adrian, these were the greats that were above me. And you look at all those characters and just like Mick, we all have strengths and weaknesses. And I like to, you know, you like to model on the best of everything and then add a bit of your own and deploy it. And that was my point. 2013, 14, 15, 16, you know, that was the point where I was able to deploy the best of what I'd learned in the previous 25 years putting my own slant on on all the best that I'd seen come before, but into in a context of a new competition, a more modern competition. And to then see that play out into record-breaking results and have fun doing it, because I was with people that I really enjoyed working with. I mean, you know, that's perfection. If uh, working in Formula One is the most brilliant career for an engineer, which it is, because you actually, you know, if we stand back, you have great funding, even in the worst teams, uh, to deploy something that can make a difference on global TV the next day. I mean, you know, compared to working on, a, I know people have worked on military aircraft and they never see it fly in their sort of career. So, so it's a great privilege to work in Formula One as an engineer, but to be then privileged to have all of that combination I just described in Mercedes, you know, massive support from the board as well to just do what it took for once and for all and, and get that those records for Mercedes. You know, it was a great privilege and really good fun. And are we going to see you back in the pit lane at any point? Um, I don't know. I'm doing some different stuff at the moment and I'm really enjoying it. So we'll see where things get to. I'm not quite missing it right this moment, but I do love motor racing and I'm not going to get away from it entirely i'm sure tell us about what you're doing now founder of zero petroleum what, what does that mean so we started a company uh, my partner is Mile shah who's professor of chemical engineering at imperial college 
and we will be making synthetic petroleum. So we're the only company in the UK doing that. There are other companies in other countries started, but it's a very new sector. Not a lot of people know this, but petroleum, which we all know well, um, use all over the place, not only for energy, but for, I mean, it's actually very difficult to come up with a product that hasn't been made with petroleum uh, or some contribution from petroleum these days. So it's ubiquitous, but we, we, we associate it always, you know, it always comes from fossils, comes from crude oil, and we're hardwired to that connection. But actually, you know, you can make petroleum from air and water, just in the same, you reverse effectively what you do when you burn it. So if you burn gasoline, you produce carbon dioxide and water, just as animals do in respiration. It's the same chemistry. So as in uh, photosynthesis, what plants do, they convert carbon dioxide and water into oxygen and hydrocarbons. You can do that industrially to create synthetic petroleum because actually petroleum is, is legacy photosynthesis. So it is a biological product in any case. But we can industrially manufacture synthetic petroleum. And can you produce it on an industrial scale? Absolutely. And this is the interesting point is there's a lot of talk at the moment about electrification. Everybody's thinking that the only answer to anything is to electrify. And whilst all of our source energy going forwards has to come from renewables, not petroleum, not fossil petroleum rather. Um, So that's wind and solar but may eventually become things like nuclear fusion, uh, which is the holy grail of an energy source. And and all of those produce electricity, and electricity is your first port of call for an application. So an electric vehicle, perfect. It's the most efficient pathway to take that renewable energy. But actually, there are many applications, and the obvious one people will understand is long-range aircraft, which cannot be electrified because batteries are too heavy. So electricity is terrific, but you can't store it efficiently, particularly with regard to mass. So an electric aeroplane that would fly from, let's say, you know, London to Dubai, it just doesn't function. It's just not, it's not even up for debate if you get into the engineering of it. An aircraft uses energy in proportion to its weight. The heavier you make it, the more energy it needs. And when you do the sums, it doesn't work with batteries and won't, by the way, because also people think that batteries will, oh, well, they'll get better. But they won't bridge that gap to kerosene, which is the the store of chemical energy we have in petroleum fuels, because the battery is effectively an electrochemical. It's a storage of electrons, whereas a, a petroleum fuel is a storage of molecular energy. And they are worlds apart in terms of density. So the good thing about synthesis of petroleum is it absolutely will scale. And it's actually the only solution that will scale these high density energy formats for the future. So it's quite feasible. And and in fact, we will do it. It's just inevitable and just not realized uh, in all quarters. Um, The fossil petroleum we use today in vast quantities will be substituted by synthetic petroleum in due course over the next 40, 50, 60 years. And are we going to see it in Formula One? Ross, Ross Braun, if you're listening. Yeah, we will see it in Formula One. We'll see it in all branches of motorsport because like aeroplanes, 
I don't get me wrong, you, you can have very small, short range aircraft that are electrified. Interesting, but not, you know, not fundamentally uh, moving us towards mass transport. The same with racing cars. I mean, we have Formula E, it works. But motorsport, if you really drill in, is a, is a display of energy, actually. You know, Formula One car is a manifestation of energy in, in really dense format. And it won't work electrically. The numbers just don't stack. So to make entertaining motorsport on full-scale tracks, as the public expect or enjoy, it's another topic, by the way, because a lot of a lot of environmental programming is about let's stop doing stuff and particularly let's stop having fun. I mean, that's all very well because you and me, Tom, might agree to do that because we think it's good for the planet, but it's unrealistic to expect the human race to do it. They won't. I mean, we can't get half the people on the planet to put rubbish in dustbins at all, let alone seven, <laughs> as they have to do in Germany. So the idea that we'll get people to stop doing stuff, particularly those who haven't had their chance yet in life in the poorer parts of the world, to say, well, sorry, guys, you know, we've spent all the carbon inventory. So, you know, no fun for you guys. It's just not going to happen. We need engineering to create the circular solutions. It's all there to be built. There's nothing much to be invented. Uh, we know how to do it. And that's very, as I've come into this sector in the last two years, which is one that on first impressions is quite depressing, the climate emergency. Actually, the more you get into it, particularly as an engineer, the more positive uh, you feel, you know, and I'm very positive about it because I can understand it's all doable. It's just a matter of time, commitment, money, politics. It's all invented, know exactly how to do it. The essential problem at the moment is that fossil fuel, which is the cause of global warming, is just ridiculously cheap, frankly. And that's uh, something that's got to change. Well, good luck with that. And Paddy, thank you very much for your time. And I hope to see you in a pit lane soon. Yeah, you too. How do you begin to sum up a chat like that? So many interesting stories and so much insight, and I now feel like I understand more about the last 30 years of the sport, as well as the future. Synthetic petroleum is a fascinating development for the world's future energy needs. But I really loved hearing Paddy talk about the bumper years at Williams, McLaren and Mercedes. Along with everyone else in those teams, he was riding a tidal wave of innovation and excitement. Just brilliant. Paddy, thanks for your time. It was great to catch up and good luck with what comes next in the shape of Zero Petroleum. And before we move on, please remember to send in any stories or chance meetings or thoughts that you have on Paddy Lowe. They can be from any era and about anything. We love hearing from you and remember... I'll read out the best Paddy stories next week. Send them to me at Tom Clarkson F1 or use the hashtag F1 Beyond the Grid. Which brings me on to what you sent in about Jos Capito after last week's show. Every message we received about Jos was hugely positive. You all seem to think he is the man to lead Williams out of their current woes. Alistair Gale got in touch with this. I loved the Jos Capito podcast, he says. I followed Williams since 1981 and I love to hear common sense and passion at the head of the team. Saddened by the family sale, now optimistic for the future. Exactly, Alistair. Couldn't have put it better myself. And Tom Woolnow added, 
I loved listening to Yost. He's such a smart and intelligent guy, really looking forward to seeing Williams in the next few years. You're kind of reiterating the point, Tom. And yes, Yost is a smart and ambitious guy with huge experience in motorsport. I think he's the man. And Daniel Waddington, perhaps a little cheekily, said this. Amazing to see the silver sideburns back in motorsport. Great story about Kimi racing on slicks when he couldn't afford wet tyres. That certainly explains a lot. Well, thanks for getting in touch, Daniel, and glad to hear you're a fan of silver sideys. Yes, that was a great Kimi story. A lot of people have forgotten that Jos was at Sauber at the time. And let's end with Karshik, who says, This was such a mesmerising episode with Jos, someone whom I never really knew about before this episode. Sounds like such a funny character with strong leadership skills. And yeah, like everyone, I think, I hope Williams will be able to win championships again. Well, thanks, Karshik, for getting in touch. And I'm sure a lot of people are nodding while listening to your comment. I could carry on and on, but I'll leave it there. And I'm sorry if I haven't read out your message, but please know that I've read each and every one of them and they're all brilliant. Well, that's it for this week. I hope you've enjoyed hearing from Paddy and remember to send in your thoughts and stories about him. As ever, I'll be back next week with another great guest from the world of Formula One. So see you then. Beyond the Grid is produced by F1 in association with Audio Boom. Until next time, keep it flat out.